this, I'm going to read to you the whole of chapters 17 and 18 today of Revelation. They're not, they're not massively long chapters, and I'll try to read them well. Um, so that it's kind of stimulating. The Bible says do not neglect the public reading of Scripture. So it's good to, to from time to time, read large chunks of Scripture. Try to stay with me. Um, we've had some memory stick problems at the Liston household, so I'm afraid there's no. Uh, it's not going to come up on the screen. Please forgive us for that. Memory stick problems um, can paralyse us at our level of technical ability. Uh, right. So we read Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and he had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs, the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom, the seven heads of seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, he is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beasts will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast, for all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. 
death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They'll stand far off in fear of her torment. They'll say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these waters who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by, their wealth, by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, this great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on earth. It's the word of God. Father, we just uh, commit uh, the preaching of this passage to you today. We pray, Lord, that you would accomplish extraordinary things in our hearts. Amen. So let me just quickly try to explain what happened there. Um, I'm not going to go into huge detail. It's not going to be a massively technical sermon today. Uh, I feel there's a big prophetic burden. I feel God, Holy Spirit, really uh, has been helping me this week looking at this and thinking about this. So what, what, what we see going on here is that John is shown the spiritual power that operates behind the lure of money, the lure of uh, sex and sexual immorality, uh, the lure of power and comfort and uh, the lure of pleasure. These, none of these things in and of themselves are wrong. But operating behind these things very often is a demonic power that can lure you into, th- lure you into it in a way that is very wrong. And very unrighteous. And John is, John is shown the spiritual power behind that. But if you might, in one phrase, behind the passing pleasures of sin, represented by this, in quotes, wonderful woman, a woman who create just stirs wonder, marvel. She oozes riches and lust and beauty of a kind. The great and the small have been caught in a trap. Kings, we're told, and just average earth dwellers like most of us, committing adultery with her, getting drunk on her pleasures, 
So we've got two drunk parties. We've got the kings of the earth and earth dwellers drunk on her, on the passion of her sexual immorality and the like, and she herself is drunk on the blood of Christians. So both parties are drunk. There are probably two potential meanings for the reality that she is drunk on on the blood of Christians. The first and probably most likely would be uh, talking about um, how world systems are established based on pleasure or money or power. And when Christians who refuse to uh, march in time with that, but but determine that that they won't be part of that spirit, but they will, be, they will remain detached from worshipping money, from worshipping pleasure, comfort, from worshipping power, from worshipping sex. When Christians who refuse to line up with that, as a result, are persecuted, ostracised, marginalised, opposed and even at times killed. That's probably the most likely way it means. But I'm also struck by, it's a little bit like, uh, as well, there are, there, there, there's a very high casualty rate also among Christians, with regards to these things. Um, Many Christians have fallen in in these areas. And I don't know if that's a relevant way of saying that she's drunk on the blood of saints, but it kind of struck me, wow, many, many professing Christians have have gone sideways in in these areas. The the, the law, the shiny lights of pleasure and comfort, power, lust, have just proved too much for them. So as John has shown this and uh, he's shown how God will bring her and her schemes to ultimate ruin, that Babylon has a shelf life. That's why the Bible talks about the passing pleasure of sin. Um, that sin is pleasurable, really is. Otherwise it, we wouldn't be tempted by it. But it's passing and there's a shelf life to this. And um, intriguingly, God will bring an end to Babylon through other different evil world powers, the beast with the ten horns and all of these things, speaking of other empires and kings and powers, that over time, for example, when this was written, people would have immediately thought Rome, about Babylon, Rome, immediately. Um, And when the powers that overtook Rome in the latter centuries after this, that would have been a fulfilment of this. And uh, time after time, when other uh, systems built on pleasure, power, lust have, have been destroyed by other powers, that's a manifestation of this. Remember how we're looking at Revelation? It's repetitive, it's cyclical, it goes all through history, but it works towards a climax. Um, so God puts it in the hearts of other evil powers to destroy the spirit of Babylon. That's how it works, that's, that's the dynamic that you see going on there. So we are. So, for example, you can you can you, you can imagine a scenario of uh, how one empire or one w- world system could be set up that was sexually very strict, uh, financially radical, um, quite even in its power base. So very unlike Babylon. Um, I mean, communism was two out of three of those things. Ideologically, communism was supposed to be rad- radical financially. That greed was supposed to be dispelled through it. And uh, power, that was, it didn't work, but it was supposed to be very evenly spread out. And, uh, and, and coming against capitalism with all of its greed and these things. It's an image, it's a picture, it's, it's one, it, it shows us these things in history. And yet it might be, I'm not saying it definitely is, but it may be that as this thing climaxes, that there is a worldwide uh, system, empire, power, who knows, that, that is, it doesn't look anything like Babylon and destroys Babylon and yet is just as antichrist as Babylon. So remember what I said, I think it was last time I preached here, that it's not, 
it, it really does matter. Um, it's not just about stopping doing certain things. Oh, I must become sexually moral now because sexual immorality is bad. That, that no, no, no. It's about Jesus and His Lordship. That's what it's about. Yeah, it's not just about leaving our particular sin. No, no. It's about it's about finding Christ and letting your heart be totally ravished by Him. That's what God wants. God doesn't just want to stop you doing certain sins. It's like it's like having a rotten tree and picking off some bad apples and saying, I hope it's okay now. No, he wants to make you into a new tree. That's what happens through Jesus, you see? So that's what John is being revealed to how these things um, how these things work. And throughout this judgment we see on Babylon there's a call from heaven for the people of God to come out. There's this call, come out from her so you don't go down with her. She's about to be judged and destroyed. If you are in with her, then you're going to come under the same fate. And we see this massive mourning as uh, these things that people have built their life on, their stuff, people have built their life on their stuff, or their pleasures, or their comforts, um, or their power. It's just destroyed. Just completely destroyed. And all of this will prepare the way for Christ's final return, which we're going to look at in the coming weeks. So that's what's going on here. In this passage, I'm not going to go into huge detail, but there's something I really want to put out and talk about. I want to talk about the power of the beauty. I want to talk about the power of this spirit of Babylon because if there's anything, us as Westerners, some of you may be here visiting and you're not from this part of the world, but those of you that are from this part of the world, this is our struggle. This is where most of us are going to face significant temptation. Okay, this this power here. This, this, this is this is the this is the stuff that can grab your heart. Um, so it's important that we look at we look at this. Um, we're told that the angel says to John, he, he, he intends to show John the judgment of the prostitute. That, that's what we see. If you look at if you look at um, chapter 17 at the start, this angel says to John, he he says. Um, Come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So that's the angel's aim. I want to show the. I want to show what's going to happen. We're told as soon as John sees her, he's, he wonders. So the angel says, "I'm going to show you the judgment of her," and John just sees her. Now, some of the commentaries I read on this, they're saying this word when it says that John wondered at her or John marvelled at her, they're saying it, it wasn't in a sense of like, whoa, you know. But this word, wherever it is used in the New Testament, is someone being massively impressed. And it's interesting that the angel says to John, why do you marvel? And we know, don't we, that the Bible writers, even though their writing was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and therefore we believe that the Bible is inerrant, that they weren't inerrant as people. The Bible writers weren't perfect. In fact, at the last chapter of Revelation 22, John, after seeing all this amazing stuff, goes and bows down to an angel to worship, and the angel says, stop. So John is just as frail and human as you and me. Praise God. But I want to point out to you, John sees this woman who is, the angel's like, I want to show you what's going to happen. But John's like, wow, she is distracting in her power, in her seductive beauty. Let me read um, this to you, this from a, a commentary. It would be foolish to underestimate her. Even John finds himself marvelling as the inhabitants of the earth marvelled at the beast. But he has been taken into a wilderness in order to witness this scene. And the wilderness represents the perpetual condition of Christian detachment 
from the affairs of civilization. It's from the desert that the Christian is able to view civilization clearly as it really is. Happy the servant of God who sees worldliness for what it is and applies the wise man's proverbs, the wise man's words in Proverbs to this loosest of loose women and learns to respect and to hate and to fear and to shun and to shun Babylon the whore. Learns how to respect are you not underestimate? Hate, fear and shun Babylon the whore. She is incredibly attractive. This woman, it was this, well this spirit, but it's person, um, illustrated by this, 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 this kind of, I guess, gaudy uh, prostitute woman. She, she um, has immense power. This, it's not wrong to call her she, but you know what I'm getting at. This spirit, incredibly powerful. There, there is an attractiveness there. Also massive influence. We're told she's over many waters and later it says the waters represent nations and languages and kings. She's, she, she, she sits astride on her beast. Every, every kind of culture and society in the earth. She's evil. We're told that the dragon supports her. And she's repulsive. We're told that she's, she's viciously, appears at least, viciously um, victorious over the saints. This is sobering stuff. This is sobering. It's one of those sermons. <laughs> it's like, oh man. But it's important that we let the words sink in and that we allow ourselves to just face it. And not, I don't want to dull it down. I don't want to, I don't, it's, it's got an edge to it. I don't want to sand it off so it's round. This is edgy. I want you to see it and feel in your heart the reality of this. She's killed many, many saints. This word sexual immorality that it referred to five times, I think, in the first five verses, the Greek word porneia. Death by porn. Death by the love of money. Death by the seduction of power. She's drunk on their blood. This is her great weakness. She must have more. To suck the life out of those who have been redeemed is what she's after. And the success rate is impressive. You might sometimes wonder how those who have walked closely with the Lord and tasted his love and have served him and have known his power have, have fallen. You think, what happened? Babylon. A lot of time. I would say I've known close encounters with this personally frighteningly powerful frighteningly powerful the kind of thing that you just you cry out to God God have mercy on me have mercy on me it's not to be underestimated but it's important that we understand her destiny the destiny of this power because sooner or later the demonic realm will tear itself apart under God's sovereignty. The beast, we're told, hates her. <laughs> it's an interesting interesting thing going on here. We're told that the beast hates her. And um, she has no future. That's the point. Why is it, why is it foolish to, to follow Babylon? Is that this, 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 this spirit, this demonic power, has no future at all. Listen to this. We may react to the glamour of this woman. We may say, how cheap, how tawdry. Because it's what we think is expected of us. But in practice, in daily life, the pearls and the purple and the golden cup have an awful fascination. The world is powerful. Its message is attractive. And we know what it's to be... We know what it is to be like the bird held by the glittering eye of the snake. This is why the spell needs to be broken by a voice of even greater authority. 
I'll say that again. One of the last words I read was sorcery. There is a there is there is a a dark power to this that can grip your soul and blind you. Please hear me. The spell needs to be broken by a voice of even greater authority. The second angel comes from heaven with a glory brighter and a voice more compelling than that of Babylon to declare again that vital part of the divine message which assures her of her final downfall. It is the message which the finger of God wrote once wrote over the actual historical Babylon. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. So whether it's totalitarian repression or decadent capitalism, which Christians have to cope with, they need to be reminded that neither the beast nor the woman is permanently in power, despite all the symbolism of the everlasting hills, and that one day their universal dominion will be in retrospect no more than a nightmare from which one has awakened. I want to ask you whether Babylon has a place in your heart today. I think that us in the West particularly, and particularly in major cities, Remember this history of Babylon, the Tower of Babel? Let's build a city. Let's gather. God says, go, multiply. Let's, say, Let's gather and build a city and make a reputation. I mean, I think major world cities are utterly, uh, are so vulnerable to the spirit of Babylon. And we live right in the middle of one. Does it have a place in your heart? Have you been taken in? Do you find yourself admiring these things? The love of pleasure and things, the love of power, an opportunity. It's a real tightrope. It's a tightrope. Why? Well, because the Bible says that every good and perfect gift is from above. And the Bible says that God actually loves to give us good things for our enjoyment. So it's not just like the message is shun everything that is pleasurable. Not at all. Not at all. It's much more subtle than that. It's a much more subtle thing than that. But it is very easy to use verses like that. Well, God gives us all things for our enjoyment to legitimise or even spiritualise what is essentially a heart given over to Babylon. Yeah, but... And you can quote... You know, you get your little scripture to make you feel better. But in your heart, you can be given over to it. How do we come out? That's what I want to ask. Come out of her. How? How do we come out? How do you come out of Babylon? Well, firstly, I would say this. As a Christian, you must have a taste for true beauty. I love this quote. Unless you frequently stop to take in beauty, you will be taken out by it. I'll say that again. Unless you frequently stop to take in beauty, true beauty, you will be taken out by it. Another kind of beauty will get you. God loves beauty. God is the God of beauty as well as truth. God is the most beautiful being, well, he's not in the whole of creation, he's not part of creation, but over and above creation, God is the God of ultimate beauty. God has created a beautiful creation, has he not? Anything of true beauty you see has been created by God. He understands beauty, he knows beauty, he is the ultimate artist. And so we should not be shunning beauty at all, we should be learning to indulge, in fact, in a quite outrageous way with true beauty. And the more you dull down on the beauty, the more you will be seduced by the wrong kind of beauty. Because your heart needs beauty. You need beauty. You need to be enjoying the beautiful things that God creates. Your soul, first of all, needs to be enjoying the beauty that is in his presence. So his, his unmatchable love, his, 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 his joy that comes into our hearts through knowing him, his creative flair, all of these things we are to be enjoying. 
And then, and then just as he delights in the work of his hands, we are in the God-glorifying way to delight in the work of his hands, to enjoy the good things in creation. It's part of our worship and it keeps us safe. Take marriage for an example. And in marriage, that is why the Bible says it is really important that a husband and wife frequently enjoy one another. Physically. That's, that is good Christian marriage. And Paul says it's a protection for you. It keeps you safe. It's a really helpful image. That actually the enjoyment of good things from God in a God-glorifying way protects us. Keeps our hearts safe from other things that would lure us away that would kill us. So are you getting enough beauty in your life? Have you got enough beauty in your life? Is there enough delight? What is it that for some it's music, for some it's art, for some it's being around natural creation, for some it's words and literature. Are you around it enough to the glory of God? Or are you just on the treadmill, just simply going through the motions? Because if you are, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable. Because a part of who you are as a human is that you need beauty. To, to, to make you fully, to keep, make you and keep you fully human. And if you deny yourself that for a prolonged period, you're not being godly or spiritual in doing so, you're being foolish. Because you'll become starved of beauty. And then something very, a very cheap, shortcut beauty will come your way. Uh, something that is, God says, no, it's going to kill you, but it's on, it's on a plate and it's there for you, and, and you're vulnerable at that point. It's so important, particularly if you're particularly in a, a, a lifestyle as busy as the typical London lifestyle. If you don't, if you if you are not, if you don't find a way of winning, if you don't find a way of conquering in that, if you just become part of the system, the rat race, then you will not stop for beauty. You'll say it's always next month. Life's always going to be different next month, or in two years, or in three years. You know what? I don't think that's credible. I think you're in a system. I think you're in the matrix. <laughs> this is a real challenge, these things. So enjoying true beauty. The Bible says in, in God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's not passing pleasures. Pleasures forevermore in the right hand of God. Now it can take a bit of effort to cultivate a true taste for true beauty. It can. I'll be honest with you. You know, and it can be a real shortcut. You, you're craving for beauty and, you know, the, the legitimate beauty seems it's a bit of effort to get to that. So you can just just click on the phone, Google images or turn the webcam on or do whatever it is and it's the shortcut. It's a shortcut, but it's killing you. It's just killing you. It's killing your soul. So there is something about saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn how to cultivate what my truest, deepest heart desires, which is the beauty of God. And that's not just praying. Praying is definitely a part of it. Absolutely. As is being in God's word. Absolutely. But also it's the relationships God provides you with in life. Also it's operating in a very fully flourishing human way in the gifts that God has given you. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not restrictive. It's, the Bible talks about God bringing us to a spacious place. But there's something that has to happen in our heart that's very narrow where we say, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually trust that you know best and I'm going to live your way. That's quite a narrow thing. That's where you, that, and, but once you've, once you've established that, God loves to bring us into a breadth and a space and allow us to run free. That's his heart. That's his heart. You understanding what I'm saying? It's so important. 
is so important. The second thing you'll need is a desire to fight. One of the things I've realised, um, I'm not making out I'm a really great fighter, I'm not, but I had loads of fights growing up. I, I, I thought everyone did and uh, I've realised most people I know ha- haven't. A lot of people I know have never had a fist fight. Uh, when I first heard my friends have never had a fight, I thought, isn't that weird? Then I realised that maybe my upbringing was weird. Uh, I was just brought up on a couple of uh, fairly... Um, yeah, fairly lively estates, and um, you, you know, you had to run the gauntlet walking through them. I mean, it's just how it was. And um, I remember I have frequent memories of being chased or chasing or being dragged or dragging, and you know, I mean, it's just there was, that was growing up. We used to have class against class fights in my primary school at playtime. No, that was just allowed. Um, so that was just my upbringing. And uh, but what I've realised is because a lot of people have never have never had a fight, they don't actually get what fighting is. They don't get it. But it's not your fault, you've just never experienced it. But you're going to need to learn a few things about fighting, spiritually. Yeah? So it's just, oh, you just don't know. So I'm going to explain a few things about fighting. <laughs> I wasn't very any, any, any much good at it, but I had a couple of, couple of victories that stick in my mind. And I've, <laughs> I've wiped the others out. So the first thing is this. Ne- never turn and run. Never turn and run. Sp- particularly in spiritual warfare, because you've got a, bless- a breastplate of righteousness, but you've got nothing for your back. So if you turn and run, you're very vulnerable. You turn and run, you, you don't know what's coming your way. You just, don't do it. <laughs> okay, so, so now, sometimes it's really tempting to turn and run. It, it is really tempting. But never, never, always, always stand your ground. Yeah, always stand your ground. That's really important. Second thing is keep your wits about you. Um, don't close your eyes. It doesn't help. It won't go away. If I close my eyes, it'll go, you know. Because my eyes go away. You won't. You're just going to get hit from angles that you're not expecting. <laughs> so don't close your eyes, which means don't bury your head in the sand. Don't go into escapism. Don't do it. You're going to just get whacked. Okay? So you go, okay, right, so I'm going to learn how to fight. Yeah, you're a Christian. You've got to learn how to fight. So, but spiritually, yeah, not, not physically, spiritually. Yeah? So I'm using it to illustrate. Don't hear what I'm, I'm using it to illustrate spiritually. So you keep your wits about you. It's okay. I want to be alert to what's going on. To what's going on here? That's really, really important. Um, uh, uh, refuse to lose. Just refuse to. Just say. Some, I was chatting to a pastor the other day. He was telling me about his kind of this nervous breakdown he had and all these things. Um, and then he said, I got to the point where I said to myself, I figured that either it, this is how it was. Uh, it's kind of like either I, I just figured that victory would come if I didn't, if, if the devil gave up before me. So I just resolved that I wasn't going to give up before him. I was just quite. It's, I thought, what brilliant logic, you know, wow. So he just said, that's what I decided. And um, yeah, very real story, you know, real human weakness and all of that, you know, it was hard. But he said, I just realised that, well, okay, if I, if I don't give up first, then I'll, I'll win. Yes. Can you hear that? If you just don't give up, you win. I remember this kid called Glenn Cobb. He, he was mean. I mean, he was mean. Glenn, if you're out there, I love you. Uh, I remember being in, over the school field, and he, he just, he punched me in the nose about four times. And he said, do you want some more? And I said, you had enough? I said, no. And, uh, and he did it again. He said, you had enough? I said, yeah. <laughs> so, but never get to that point where you say to Glenn Cobb, yeah. J- just find a way to keep saying, no, I'm still here. I'm still here. Because uh, that's how Christian victory is like that sometimes. Yeah, it is. It's like that. Because look at Jesus' victory. It was a messy business. Yeah? Set his face like flint. Here we go. That's what we're doing. So that's, that's, what, that's what winning by the blood of Christ looks like. Say, so, uh, Jesus, you have won. Therefore, I refuse to lose my confidence in your victory. 
I refuse. You, if I stay here, I must win because I'm in you. So if I maintain my confidence in your victory, it's all good. And that is it. You haven't got to do anything particularly impressive. You're in the one who's won. But the idea of the enemy is to try and move you from that place of confidence. No, I will not. No, 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 no. And so it's not giving way. These are, the, this is how it works. So, uh, I hope this is helping. Um, so remember how we, how we win last week? We, we win by the blood of the Lamb and we refuse to shut up about Jesus. Remember that? Yeah? That's how we win. So that's what we'll keep doing. And um, our hearts get broken sometimes. Do you know that? Our hearts get broken sometimes. Being honest, we have to learn to live with it. If you want to, if you want to go through, you have to just learn to live with what it's meant. So, like David and Jesus, we're called to be lovers and warriors. So we get very serious about beauty and very serious about fighting, and we win because that's 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 what he calls us to. So, so what does it look like to to come out of Babylon? Because um, obviously Jesus was a friend of sinners, right? And as a result, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because he was in all the wrong places. Yeah? He was in all the bad places. So coming out of Babylon is a really weird thing because it's kind of like, it's not just like, don't go to any bad places. That's not coming out of Babylon. And some churches have kind of preached that. Come out, come out. It's like, come out of anywhere bad. Just just hang out in holy places. I, I, I'm sure Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I've sent you. Didn't he? I'm sure that we are called to be in the world, aren't we? So there's a real, again, it's a tightrope. I, I need to be able to, I need to be in the bad places. <laughs> I need to be out there. I can't just be in Christian meetings the whole time, right? I've been sent by Jesus, so I need to be in the world, okay? But in my spirit, I must be utterly serious about my holy devotion to him and him alone. That is what made Jesus have an impact when he went to the bad places. Something changed when he went. He didn't just go there. Something happened when he went. Why? Because of who he was. Internally, he had come out when he was never in it. He was, there was nothing in him that was attached to Babylon. He was not attached to pleasure, comfort. He was not attached to sexual immorality. He was not attached to those things. It's a work of God in his heart. It's what God's grace will do in you if you let him. Yeah, it's not about it's not about becoming some superhuman. How can ever? No, no. It's just about letting the Lord do what He does in you. He'll do it. He does the work, right? But you just got to let Him. And if, so, if you cling to stuff that He's saying that's going to kill you, then there's going to be a problem. But if you just let Him, if you let, He'll do it. He's the sanctifier, isn't He? He does it. But there's something there's something whereby we kind of sanctify ourselves. We say, Lord, I'm going to in my heart, I decide to be set apart for You, Jesus. And then He'll say, Right, I'm going to go to work on You. Can be beautiful and powerful. So you've got to work out where your allegiance, where your allegiance is. Um, I just want to apply this um, to those of you, three groups. First, you those of you that are in the arts. Who here is one way or another into something artistic, into artist art, art? Okay, right. Jesus is calling you into the artistic realm with a agenda for it to be uh, for, through through His people for the, for redemption to come into the arts, which means for for and I'm not I'm not coming with a naive thing saying that saying that through through 
Christians' influence, um, the whole of worldly art will suddenly become God-glorifying. Right? But what I'm saying is, is that there will be, there, there will be um, salt, which is fl- brings flavour, and light will come into the world of art through Christians who understand that Jesus has called them in there on a redemptive agenda. Okay? There's something to be done in, that, in, in the realm of art, and you mustn't compromise. Purity is key. When it comes to art, purity is key. Because art is, is very vulnerable to impurity. Because I remember hearing, listen, reading a very interesting interview by a, a, a pop group, can't remember their name, but they're all about the music, you know. And he's, he, he's talking about, he's, he's talking about um, you know, how to compete in the modern pop world. He said simply this, I can't compete against porn. He said, well, he said, we're never going to do it. Well-known, established musician. Referred to certain names, certain stuff. He said, how can I compete against that? There's something, art is just, because there's such a fine line between pure beauty and the other stuff. It's, it's oh, 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 and sometimes you think even yourself, you know, you, oh, is that, you know, it's delicate. And even often you'll find even believers, spirit-filled, not quite sure agreeing on, is that, is that over the line? Do you know, it's delicate. Lots of discernment needed. But a heart of no compromise and, and a desire for beauty is key. I want you to see as, as, as artists the beauty of God in the gospel. The wonder, the beauty of what he has accomplished for us. And yet surprising. You know, we hid our faces from him. Isaiah 53. as one smitten from God. We couldn't even look at him. He had, he had no natural beauty that we would be drawn to him. So it's, it's a different kind of beauty. It's surprising, it's subversive, it's shocking. But actually what it is, it, it's redemptive. It brings, brings glory to God. And so you're, you'll be going in, uh, undermining certain value systems. Thinking, can we do this? It's not allowed. It's subversive. But you go in and it's like you, you lay some bombs there and they go off and suddenly, whoa, people are seeing things differently. By the Holy Spirit. I, don't, I can't give you any practical steps because I'm not an artist. Well, I can, I can rant at you about these things and trust that the Holy Spirit will help you. I just want to say there's a difference between appreciating the beauty of creation and worshipping it. Keep the right side of it. Keep appreciating the beauty of creation but don't start to worship it. Secondly, any of you here in business, you say, I'm a business person. I'm a business type. We need a few more. We need a few more. We've got some. Okay, I'm going to speak to you for a few minutes. God wants to bring redemption into the business world. Amen? All of us should say amen to that, not just the business people, okay? God wants to bring redemption into here. No compromise. Generosity is key. Generosity is key in God's plan to redeem the business realm. Think of the self-giving love of God in the gospel. Think about him, though he was rich, he became poor, that through him we may, we may become rich. Think of, think of what God might want to do in, in the realm that you work in. Think about, think about some of the people you know. Think about some of the resources that maybe now or in the future will be your, at your disposal. And think about, God, what would it look like for me to seek first your kingdom with those resources? There's a massive difference between making money and hoarding and investing in the kingdom of God. There's a massive, massive difference. There's nothing wrong with money. Amen? There's nothing wrong with money. The love of money is the problem. The love of money. If you're in the business world, keep yourself from it. Because the Bible says that if you pursue that, you pursue rich to be rich, you will pierce yourself with many a pain. You will pierce yourself. Don't do it. 
You'll always need more or want more. It just doesn't, it, no, that, do not pursue that. Pursue him and his kingdom. And he can entrust you with mighty resources for his kingdom work. Any here in authority? You have some authority of some kind, some influence. You're in a position, you have others that you're responsible for one way or another. Okay. God's plan is to radically redeem the way authority looks. Humility is key. Humility is absolutely key if you have authority. Remember the humility of God in the gospel. That him who is of the highest position, he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. It's the gospel. Let the gospel work on your mind and heart. There's a massive difference between being comfortable with your authority and using your authority for your comfort. There's a massive difference between being comfortable with your authority and then using your authority for your comfort. You are to use your authority to serve others. And that means sacrificially. You put them first by the grace of God. I want to finish this message by saying that we really do not live in a time where piecemeal spiritual tokenism will do anything. We can't just have a bit of Jesus on Sunday. It just, there's no point. There never has been any point, but the days are urgent. Um, I want to tell you, go for it. Jesus went for it. He went for it for us. He went for it. Did, he, did Jesus go for it radically? Right. And he went for it to get a radical people. He did. He really did. And radical doesn't mean loud. It just means, radical means that the word means at the root. He wants you at your root. And uh, it's a pleasure to be involved with you, part of the church of you, helping to shepherd you, because I get to hear some of the most wonderful radical stories about what God's doing in you. I want to urge you to keep going. Go for eternity. Take the hits for refusing to align with Babylon. You will take hits. There will be loss in this age. There will be moments where you re- there was an opportunity, the door was open, but you knew the Lord hadn't opened it. Okay? Because it's not good enough to simply say the door's open. Do you know that's not good enough? Do you know that's lazy? If the way you live your life is simply when the door's open, that's not good enough. There's how many doors are open? Hundreds. Hundreds of doors are open. You need more than that. You need wisdom. You need wisdom. Say, God, is this from you? It's really important. Otherwise you'd just be lured by opportunity. That's a massive one. Well, there's an opportunity. You live in London. <laughs> That's not, it's, it's lazy, spiritually lazy. You say, God, lead us. He will lead us. He will lead us. There will be peace. There will, things will come together. You'll see, you'll know. Okay, this is God saying, this is the way walking it. So don't just go for every open door. And don't, tra- don't, don't trample down your conscience, that's another one. You can trample down your, co- your conscience, just going, ah, and you stuff it down. Because it's an opportunity. No. Don't do that. You are setting a path that is not a good path. That, it doesn't go anywhere good. The Lord wants you to honour your conscience. Even if you think, well, my conscience is oversensitive. Okay, still honour it. As you grow in the Lord, and it becomes a bit more robust through the gospel then fine. That's how this thing works. But you can't just tread all over it in order to make it more robust. You'll just sear it. So the Lord, our conscience does grow stronger as it's educated through the gospel and able to manage things at one one time we couldn't for some of us if we've got particular tender conscience. But while it's tender, honour it. 
even if you think this is a bit silly or over the top, honour your conscience. Something the Lord has to, I think, convict me of quite regularly, just to try to share honesty with you. I'm, I'm someone who has uh, an embarrassingly tender conscience. It's good, there's good in it, there's other times it's just annoying, <laughs> frankly. And it's even embarrassing to tell the person involved what's going on. You think know, this is ridiculous. So sometimes I just trample over it because I don't want to look like the nut. I've, I've got to keep finding courage in God not to do that. Because it's important. Babylon will fall in the end. Babylon will fall in the end. Uh, humble yourself under God's mighty hand and he will lift you up at the proper time. He will establish you. He will establish you for eternity. It's always been normal for believers to pay a price somewhere or the other for coming out of Babylon. Deal with it. Get over it. We are the people of God. It's actually an, an enormous privilege. At any point, if ever you experience malignment, being ostracized, being accused because of Jesus, you are greatly honoured. Or so they treated the prophets before you. You are greatly honoured. And so we need to grow robust in these things with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus who went through it all before us. Amen? Amen.